0: Welcome to the Hague Programme for Cyber Norms podcast, where we talk to researchers and practitioners in the field of cybersecurity and technology. My name is Monica Kaminska, and I'm a postdoc with the Hague Programme, and this is the second episode in the series. Today, we'll be talking about academic use of private sector research, uh, particularly threat intelligence research, but not only, and also academic collaboration with the private sector more broadly. I'm joined by three very prominent figures in the cybersecurity field. Uh, Juan Andres Guerrero Sade, F- Frederic Duzet, and Florian Egloff. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, can I just ask you to introduce yourselves very briefly?
1: I'm Juan Andres Guerrero Sade. I'm currently an adjunct professor with Johns Hopkins CIS and uh, formerly Kaspersky great uh, Google Chronicle uh, a few different threat intel shops.
2: Hello, I'm Frederic Douzet. I'm a professor of geopolitics at the University of Paris 8, and I'm also the director of GIOD, uh, which is a Youth center uh, geopolitics of the data sphere uh, that just got the label Center of Excellence from the Ministry of Armed Forces.
3: And I'm Florian Egloff. I'm a senior researcher in cybersecurity at the Center for Security Studies at ETH Zurich where I do research um, on all things cyber politics, mostly on attribution these days, but also on other matters of intelligence policy.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much and welcome to you all. Uh, so I thought we could start with uh, quite a thought-provoking tweet from Juan Andres, which he sent some months ago. So Juan said, I'm witnessing a growing body of academic literature about nation-state offensive cyber operations that don't accurately reflect the realities of that domain aimed towards policymakers. So Juan Andres, I think uh, maybe you could start off with that. Maybe you could elaborate a little bit on the problem that you identified, and, and that will kick off our discussion here. Uh,
1: sure. Sure. Uh- I have to kind of temper myself from, from the the hot takes that I'm willing to put out on, on Twitter to what is actually worth discussing uh, amongst these peers. Uh, but there's definitely a divide, uh, at least between what's happening in um, academic discussions uh, and what's happening with commercial research groups. And it's almost sad to see that uh, these two seldom mix. They seldom uh, run into each other in any way. It's like we're, we're living in, in very different um, realities. And I find that kind of sad because I've always been a proponent for the idea that that the academic sector has a lot to contribute with its own voice to the same work that we tend to do in the commercial sector. Uh, but at this time, you know, if if the academic sector is going to kind of ignore some of the technical reporting we have a problem if the com, you know if the commercial sector is going to ignore the frameworks and the sort of conceptual and contextual uh value that the academic sector is providing we obviously have a problem and and that seems to be the reality that we're existing in it's it's almost diverging into two narratives
0: that's really interesting and i, I think there are probably you know frustrations on both sides so uh, Frederic frederick florian is there anything that you would like to add to this from your perspectives
2: Sure, we're we're uh, as academics doing our best to understand this environment, and sometimes it's very frustrating to know that some private companies do have uh, insights and um, technical knowledge that would really clearly inform our research, and we could benefit from. And uh, I have personally engaged with the private sector a number of times to try to get access to this data. So we do it's easy to talk to the private sector. It's much harder to get hard data in order to, for example, kind of conduct a series of analyses, do maps. Uh, we like cartography in geopolitics um, in order to, to do more solid research. And um, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, First, they make money out of this data, so when we ask it for free or for cheap because the university doesn't have that much money, um, it becomes a difficult conversation. But even when they're willing to contribute it, uh, then they go down to uh, their technical people and they tell them, well, it's complicated to aggregate the data and uh, it takes time and if it takes time, it takes money and we don't have the time, so we don't get it. And then you have confidentiality issues uh, that might uh, be problematic as well. So it's, um, it's quite difficult. And we end up doing research uh, that uh, is informed by whatever we can find in open source. And there's a lot out there, uh, but that requires developing our own tools to collect it and process it and by the discussions we can have uh, um, so we try to sometimes get our ideas or paper uh, um, reviewed or discussed with people who have more information to make sure that we are not saying anything uh, silly Um, but it would really help to have access to the real data
3: so i share most of what frederick just said i think that those are the key issues Uh, i think access to telemetry and it's, it's actually really hard right and it's hard for many reasons that you just explained um it's also hard because it's a trust issue right um so um in this area there are lots of motivated parties that don't want to share with one another and some of them for good reason um and so it takes a long time to earn that trust um and many academics just don't stay in that for for long enough also Um, Threat Intel specifically is a relatively young discipline that doesn't necessarily get taught at universities. Um, And so it's not natural to have the pool of expertise and the pool of networks available um, that just naturally sort of build those collaborations.
2: Yeah, I think Florian mentioned a very important factor, trust. And uh, what's happened to me uh, at least three times now is that I've started building a trust relationship with someone in the company up to the point we had like meetings after meetings. We established a trust relationship and whenever we were ready
0: to share the data, then the person moved to a different company and then we had to start all over
2: again. And that is very frustrating.
0: For sure. I I can see that and sympathize with that as well. And Florian, you've also um, pointed to, uh, specifically within the threat intel industry, um, some problems with the commercial incentives um, of these companies uh, to make their research public and how that shapes our understanding of cyber conflict, which can lead to a bit of a skewed picture. Can you walk us through your argument a little bit there and the challenges that this presents for academics?
3: Sure. So this is an argument that I made in in an article called uh, Contested Public Attributions. Um, and it's a sort of, uh, I think, five step argument. Uh, first, I'm going to be very brief. So first, the offensive actors hide their tracks, right? So that's, partially why we don't know about what's going on. So the, there are incentives to hide. The second is that the victims have incentives not, to not report and keep their victimhood secret. So that also doesn't end up in the public domain. Um, and obviously many companies would honor that um, com- confidentiality and don't publish on on victims that don't want to be published on. Um, and then on the security company side, Um, their visibility is limited, right? So their visibility is limited by the telemetry that they have access to, and that largely revolves around the customers that they serve. And so the the type of cyber conflict that we tend to pick up is the type of customer that a threat intel company would have. That's a part part of that prism, right? Um, There's another aspect of what I call attribution asymmetry. So um, attribution costs money, If you want to do it well and not every company is incentivized to actually spend that money on every intrusion why would you right and so the the amount of investment that you have to to build into that has to be somehow commercially viable and so um for some victims this makes a lot more sense than for others right and so i would say most people that experience cyber insecurity will never actually have access to an attribution resource um, they will they will not know who attacked them um, and then the last point is a is a political point is a question around what type of information ends up in the in the public sphere and there there are commercial and political uh, incentives to report some attacks and not others um, I would say on the government side that's very obvious right on the government side we see public attribution being used as a political tool. Um, and on the commercial side, it's also kind of obvious if you look at uh, which attacks are being reported by which companies and which aren't reported by which companies, um, though they must be known by some of them, um, you see that there is a skewed incentive to report on some uh, some intrusions and not others. So that's the sort of the shortly summarized the argument around how we end up with a skewed picture. Mm,
0: Juan?
3: Yeah,
1: um, I I mean, I I agree entirely with with Florian, and it's important to have a kind of a a real politics sense of why uh, information ends up where it does. Uh, The commercial sector has a lot of, I won't call them perverse incentives, but definitely misaligned incentives as to what information gets shared and what gets put forth. Uh, It's even harder when you get into what Frederic is discussing, where you're talking about getting actual telemetry and, and raw data. Uh, it gets even worse but usually um, there's this series of issues that come along with having ndas in place uh, with having um, proprietary methods of collecting information half of the time you don't want to own up to what those methods might be it may very well be that you know this company has an agreement with an isp an internet service provider somewhere that has allowed them to put a box somewhere in line where they're collecting a, a ton of passive DNS. and that's just a friendship that somebody struck up at some point and and they were allowed to do this. And they don't want to lose that, but they also can't own up to it. They can't put the ISP out for having you know for having allowed them to do that. Um, similarly, a lot of for example, what we're seeing now with with solar winds and and this sort of sunburst, it's very popular supply chain attack. Um, as we start to get into the second stage, Uh, implants, a lot of them are coming from incident response engagements, which entail NDAs and commercial relationships with the victims. And for some reason, and I I really think that this has more to do with us not establishing some uh, standard method of victim to commercial enterprise relationship. It's become standard fare to say an incident response engagement is something covered under NDA, even the malware, which in no way is a proprietary thing that belongs to the victim. If anything, it belongs to an intruder that has placed it there also falls under the the same restrictions that you would if you happen to stumble upon a document that belongs to a victim. Uh, so it, even in trust relationships, that might be the one inviolable um roadblock to sharing information, even where we have really well established uh, commercial sharing relationships. So you have these sort of layers of problematic um, misaligned incentives for sharing that are just stacked one on top of the other. And that's before we even get into the question of attribution as Florian was discussing. I mean, that's so far removed. Uh, We're just trying to share samples at
0: this point. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think sometimes we don't appreciate those challenges enough uh, from the side of academia. Frederique, do you have some uh, comments on this?
2: Yeah, I I would also like to point uh, that if you look at the global distribution of the companies
0: that have
2: advanced capabilities in terms of of attribution, you have huge imbalances. And that leads also to uh, some very powerful nations in cyberspace uh, whose attacks are Clearly, totally overlooked, um, and uh, overwhelmingly, and, and 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 overwhelming representations of some other countries that might be geopolitical rivals. So it's it's also very important for us as academics to uh, have that factor in mind uh, when we do research, because clearly, I I believe because of these imbalances and uh, and these. Um, Uh, geographic distribution that is not uniform, uh, then what the body of research from the private sector says does not reflect an accurate picture of what's going on. Uh,
3: Just to add to that, so agreed entirely, what that leads to is problematic for democracies, right? Because the public information picture, like what is actually established in the public domain as having happened, uh, we describe it as being inaccurate and we as experts know that there is a skewedness in this, but it's very hard for that to be reported like that by news media and by by other stakeholders that then um, contribute this to the democratic discourse. And for me like um, I worry about uh, the effect that that has on the perception of cyber conflict and the also the reactions that are um, demanded from our own governments. Um, to be active in this space so for me like that's mm-hmm. why i wrote the article in the first place right for me this is exactly what i worry about is this sort of prolonged effect that this cumulative body of knowledge has um on our politics
0: yeah and you propose quite an innovative solution to that um do you want to do you want to talk to us about how you you want academia and universities to engage more in attribution
3: um sure so i'm i i'm I don't know whether Frederick wants to jump in first, maybe?
2: Oh, sure. I'm happy to, uh, because I think I totally agree with you. And um, especially we we do a lot of work um, on information manipulations, disinformation, fake news, whatever you want to call it. And for us, it puts us in a very difficult place because we're geographers. We're interested in seeing how information propagates throughout the networks and how you can detect communities, how you can understand conflictuality but we don't want to be doing attribution uh, for several reasons. First, because we're very humble and we know that there is only as much as we know uh, and we can get from open source uh, data. And again, we don't have access to um, intelligence. Uh, And the second thing is, well, we're geographers. We like to do field work in different countries. Uh, We understand how they think and what they do because we talk to them, because we spend months there, because we talk to academics. And if you start pointing fingers at different countries, then you lose access to this country and you lose access for yourself, but you lose also access for your students. So it's a huge responsibility to do that. And third, I don't think it helps um, the discussion. Um, it might help getting contracts to tell the people in power what they want to hear, but uh, it doesn't help you do good work. So we have a policy which is don't believe the hype and look more closely.
3: So I, I see this slightly different. Um, so I would say I'm inspired by the citizen labs work in that regard. So there are definitely research groups around that do independent data collection. So that's where I would start is, are you actually an independent data collector? Are you somebody who is collecting data on intrusions in some shape or form? Be that by collecting the data through a third party or be that um, through a, your own university network, which is often highly exposed, right? Um, so there are sources of data that we are actually the stewards of as universities. And we could also be reporting on what type of cyber conflict is happening to our own communities. So there are ways that we can engage in this as a primary data collector. Um, in a secondary form, I think we have the ability to comment on the publicly available data and exactly make the points that Frederick and I and Juan were just making about the skewness of this data and actually analyze it to what degree that skewness actually exists and show that, um, you know, what what is it that we know about very... Uh, p- prominent intrusions? What What is the data that is actually publicly established? What are the inferences that we think are permissible based on the publicly available data? And imperfect as that might be, that gives us a bit more of a solid information basis for the public to consume on where the argument lies, right? Whom do you have to trust in order to buy a certain type of attribution? What type of inference do you have to make? And I think being able to inform that by having a bit more methodologies and also be a bit more um, dig a bit deeper into attribution as a process, I think that will be something that academics definitely can contribute to this conversation. I, you know, I fully recognise that um, there are challenges for different researchers. Um, to be more outspoken in this space or less outspoken. And that comes um, with where you are, what type of research you're doing, what type of communities you're engaged with. And I I think that that differs across the space, right? Um, And to me, I think those who are in a space that have a relatively protected area to do research from, I think those do have the responsibility to speak out. Um, That's for me, like that is part of being an academic.
1: I think that's you're you're touching upon an immensely valuable point which is th- there's a there's an asymmetry in sharing that is I think actually quite upsetting to the commercial sector whenever we get into conversations of you know information sharing as this unalloyed good that we should all be willing to engage in which is what we're really advocating for is Information freeloading. Could you please provide us all with all this information that you have? We all want to play with it, and I agree wholeheartedly. I, I definitely would be very happy to be in the receiving end of it. Uh, but I think Citizen Lab is the model to follow. They they're doing amazing research. More importantly, they're collecting their own data. And from the perspective of the commercial sector, they're a desirable partner. There's somebody that you go, well, we're dealing, we want to deal with civil society. We want to have access to greater information. We're more than willing to bring our information or our expertise to bear um, and have some of that exchange back and forth. So, you know, the, the the folks over at Citizen Lab have definitely cracked it in a way. And, I, you know, I like the, I like the suggestion uh, that Florian's making about, you know, collecting within universities and collecting uh, within these networks. There's a lot to be, Picked up there that a lot a lot of the commercial sector would would give you know their left arm to to have right. You've got uh, government sponsored research happening. You've got uh, a lot of just computers that are flying across the world and coming back to a university sector being within the same network. I mean, it's a ginormous honeypot um, that, that we'd love to have access to. Uh, but I, I'd like to involve a different dimension as well. I know that we're focusing on academia, but given you know my my partners here in this podcast i think that europe has a really important role to play in in shifting these dynamics there's a u.s centrism to how the market functions right now uh we're a giant market but more importantly most of the companies are either started or headquartered in the u.s we're playing by u.s politics or u.s market dynamics most of the time and interestingly um as i heard mentioned before there's a skew in what information we're willing to discuss, right? It's easy to talk about uh, North Korea and Russia and Iran because who cares? I mean, if you alienate that market, it makes next to no difference. Um, I would point to the hesitation by companies like Google to talk about China. Interestingly enough, you, you do see you know, a company like Facebook will come out and attribute to you know, Ocean Lotus to a company in Vietnam without you know missing a beat. But where is that kind of attribution when it comes to uh, Chinese threat actors? Uh, My point about Europe, sort of to kind of wrap that up, uh, is Western Europe sits in this perfect confluence between being a desirable market, having a series of of, uh, companies and obviously governments of interest, and being targeted by both sides. Both, you know, whatever's going on in the U.S., uh, whatever interests we might have, whatever um even just commercial mercenary groups financial interested criminal groups and also being on the receiving end of china and russia and everybody else uh, while having to gain their services from u.s centric companies so i feel like if anybody's in a position to essentially strong arm these companies and in, in, into having less of a skewed view to, of the world it is western europe
2: yeah well that's Definitely what we're trying to do and my center, we do collect a fair amount of data. Now we're sometimes also limited in what we can get in terms of open source. Uh, I mentioned uh, this information, for example, because uh, Europeans uh, heavily rely on uh, American platforms. So that. There are limitations. We regularly engage to try to get some of the restrictions lifted in order to do more work. Uh, we also develop alternative methodologies um, to do this. But that uh, we still um, struggle with this idea of public attribution when we like to publish once the uh, Um, The issue is a bit more cold as opposed to when it's super hot uh, for many reasons um, that that I have explained. Um, But that's definitely an issue. And I think in our research and also uh, public discussions, just to make uh, uh, other nations and especially the U.S. uh, companies, government aware, of um, the question of reciprocity, the question of how they can be perceived from outside. It's really interesting. I mean, look at all the outrage around solar wind and everybody should be outraged. I mean, this should not happen, but at some point seeing some figures in the US being totally outraged when you know that the United States has been caught um, with intrusion in the systems of nearly all the governments in the world you like. I understand you're not happy about this, but uh, maybe before you put out a political reaction, you need to think about the precedent you've set, and that has been revealed by Edward Snowden. So sometimes it's it's a little weird because we have a good relationship with uh, with the US, and and but sometimes um, a number of actors seem a bit blindsided about uh, what's been going on and. Uh, uh, and that's also reflected by all the work published by threat intelligence companies that, again, totally overlook that aspect of, uh, of things. Juan?
1: Yeah, uh, agreeing with Frederic. Uh, without you know betraying my my mother country, um, there's there's definitely something that solar winds is sh- or sorry, the sunburst incidents is, sh- is showing us that. Definitely a certain amount of alligator tears that are being cried over this, but it's not just the fact that like, we, we know that there are uh, similar supply chain attacks being conducted by the U.S. and other you know of the great cyber powers, but also that we've seen supply chain attacks like this affecting a larger swath of victims over the past two, three years, and we're acting like this is the first time this has ever happened. And I I think it's sad. I mean, in the same way that, you know, I think it's kind of demeaning to hear, oh, Ukraine is the testing ground of Russia. It's like, I think it's a country in and of itself. And it's, you know, suffering quite a bit without, you know, whether (laughs) whether you want to humanize them or not. Uh, There's also, you know, Shadowpad with South Korea. Shadowhammer affecting a lot of CC cleaner, affecting a lot of just normal users across the Internet and becoming. The launching grounds for yet another attack that was commercially quite impactful to a lot of folks. Supply chain attacks are not new, but most importantly, well known, widely affecting supply chain attacks, not Petya, Shadow Hammer, CC Cleaner, Shadow Pad, have been happening over the past three, four years. And I think it's a little, uh, yes, we should be disturbed by Sunburst, but there's definitely some some greater tragedy here as to us treating it like it's the first time that this has ever happened or it's worth talking about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Florian?
3: So for me, I'm just picking up on something Frederick said about the hot and cold, right? So by hot and cold, she meant um, the, the sort of more in the past or more current debate. And for me, this is actually key because as academics, we don't need to be calling the shots like, you know, blow by blow right now. But what we can do is work on a more joint, shared history of cyber conflict, right? We can actually work on some of the issues, some of the intrusions that happened maybe a decade ago, 15 years ago, right? And that may also lead to different conversations about data access with some of the threat intelligence um, companies. I know that historical data is very valuable, but if it's specific to specific intrusions, like the conversation becomes a little bit more accessible and a bit more um it it's not the type of information that you sell directly to your active customer base and so for me like this is actually something we uh, where i think about listeners this is the opportunity space right you can pick any actor read up on them and think about like how were they contextualized by the threat intelligence um firms and is that really the best we can do right we i i think there's a lot academia has to offer on embedding some of these activities into larger strategic engagements that countries operate within and also into agency histories right into who are these actors what are they doing what are their tasks what are the people that are working there right there's there's a lot of um, contextual history and and country-specific knowledge that we bring to bear that threat intelligence is just not interested in providing right now. Um, And so that's Mm -hmm. something that we can bring um, that I do not see currently or that I see a lack of um, in public reporting.
2: I just also wanted to mention that there's a lot of work uh, that we can do in cyber policy and particularly cyber diplomacy without attribution, uh, meaning that we can absolutely look at a case and decide which norms of responsible behavior or international obligation it has violated without uh, naming the perpetrator. Uh, we can decide on rules of the road. Uh, we can decide also on the different responsibilities of state uh, to protect, uh, to improve their cyber security, to improve international cooperation, best practices, you name it. So there's a lot of, uh, of work. Uh, that we can do as academics uh, in order to help um, shape behavior uh, and improve cybersecurity for all and also become a lot more aware of the systemic risk that is induced by conflictuality in cyberspace. I mean, we had a number of um, close calls, uh, WannaCry, Uh We're seeing now that some of these attacks uh, can be, um, if not reused, uh, imitated. Uh, we've had a number of hospitals that have um, been victim of ransomware in the middle of the COVID crisis. So I think there's a lot of work that we can do without having to point fingers.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And uh, thank you for, for explaining the clear role that academia can play here and also the opportunities for engagement with the private sector. I think that's really useful. Um, pivoting slightly, uh, we mentioned our listeners, and I think a fair few of them are probably young scholars just uh, getting started in cybersecurity. So I thought, while I have Juan Andrés here, I'll uh, I'll ask you about how how they can get started, really, with using threat intelligence research and collecting data from the private sector. If you are putting together sort of a research methods manual on data sources. Where would one go to find this information? Uh, you on the spot. yeah, I mean,
1: not 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 only you're putting me on the spot. I mean, it's a, it's a really it's a broad question, uh, and that I I'm kind of tussling with myself most of the time, right? Because you're there's it's one thing to wear a commercial hat where, thankfully, you've got a lot of money and a lot of access to to your own data. So it's assumed that you have access to Virus Total, and it's assumed that you have access to uh, you know, passive total and so on, and all these great sources of information alongside what you own. And it's a lot harder to come at it as an academic or as a student. Uh, but I will say that the amount of goodwill in the in the threat intel and infosec industry at large is, um, is often not given enough merit. Like you can write the guys at VirusTotal and just say, hey, I'm a student, can I please have access? And they'll give you an account. They'll give you access to a small amount, but a, and a you know a certain amount of, of access. Same with passive total. Same with even some of the reporting. I know that that folks chafe at the idea that that the private sector, the commercial sector, has decided that they're going to do private reporting behind a paywall. And usually, we're talking about six-figure contracts. I mean, these are not they're not small subscriptions. Um, I've made the argument that that's actually a market necessity based on the attribution problem and the fact that, you know, companies are tired of of sweating um, how they're going to get burned for having published on, uh, you know, Western European operation and so on. Uh, But in any case, that doesn't preclude you from writing researchers and saying, look, I'm 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 working on uh, one of my favorite topics. I'm working on Turkish operations. And I, you know, I'm a scholar out of a university in Turkey, and I really care about this thing. And I'm trying to kind of put these things together. What can you provide me? And people will share information. Uh, that's kind of my backdoor way of taking, you know, coming back to Frederican and Florian's points about um, what academia can do. And it's something that I think still would hopefully answer some of your question uh, about what students can do there is a lot of work to be done precisely in the space that the commercial sector is uncomfortable speaking to, which is where do these operations marry reality? Where do they marry international relations and geopolitics? And, um, a lot of the reports, it's not that we don't know uh, as commercial providers or producers of threat intel reports, it's not that we don't necessarily know where things interfere or intermingle with civil society or with, with, you know, Uh, politics du jour, it's just we can't talk about it. The minute that we start to talk about how strong pity operations map onto the current geopolitical landscape within Turkey, we all of a sudden have a series of of problems that will probably preclude that report from being published. They're probably going to get called out in a variety of ways, starting from what makes you think that attribution is right, which we probably don't want to talk about, um, all the way to, well, you're missing the local context within Turkey and you don't actually understand what's happening between these groups. And precisely to that point, I would love to see uh, local academics or students that understand the fabric of those societies better, take these reports and run with them. I mean, feel free. We wish we could, we wish we had the insight that you have and the freedom that you have as a student or as an academic to do so. Uh, Please do
0: so. Fantastic, thank you. Frederic.
2: Okay, I will take you up on your offer because we have plenty of students who speak different languages and are very knowledgeable of different parts of the world. Um, And this is actually how we work. We have them go to different countries. We have them conduct interviews on the field uh, with different actors. um, and, And they talk to people in the private sectors and sometimes they get great information of the records. Uh, and they combine uh, fieldwork interviews with whatever they can find in open source. Um, and we train them on some tools, so of course we don't do threat intel, but everything that has to do with uh, content we look into. We do also cartography of uh, data routing and uh, BGP manipulations and uh, I mean everything we've been able to develop so far. Uh, and that adds—we call that the digital field work. Um, so they do physical field work and digital field work, and they combine that uh, in order to produce report. And, and sometimes it works pretty well.
3: I always just to uh, jump in. So I always like to give people like a thing that they can do, you know, in the next 30 minutes or in the next hour. Like, what is it—a thing that you could do right now? without having access to any of these researchers and know everything, right? And this is like, um, what I teach my students is take two reports on the same actor, right? Preferably by different companies. Read them thoroughly. Try to understand what claims they are making. What are the data behind it? What's Are they convincing? Why are they convincing, right? Do some source critique. Start to understand the underlying data, the business models that these companies are are making. What, are they, what claims are they making? What audiences are they addressing? Actually understanding two reports on the same actor is a start, right? And for me, what I then say to students is, if you're really interested in this space, pick one actor and read all the reports that you can find on that actor. It doesn't really matter which actor you're picking, just Pick any that you're that you find interesting, and become the person who knows everything about that actor. At that point, you are then learning how different companies operate in that space. What types of things are they picking up? What types of um, evolutions of these threat actors are they picking up on? Um, what type of visibility changes are happening throughout the industry across time? Um, and what type of victimology changes and so on, you're starting to understand the logics behind attracting a threat actor, right? Um, And at that point, this is a very immersive way of starting to learn the the ropes of this space. If, If you've made it that far... Then I would say start actually like learning how to do attribution properly. Start to, you know, enroll in courses <laughs> if you can. Um, and, and at that point, you're then proficient enough to start to pick where you think you can add maximum value. Is it in the country-specific knowledge, the actual like in-depth on the c- contextual understanding of the politics? Is it more in a methodological space, right? Might be more in a particular tracking method or in a particular uh, very technical way of analyzing specific parts of operations? Is it a specific um, type of attack like the supply chain attacks that we've seen, right? Do you become the person that knows every supply chain attack that we know publicly about and knows when they're used most frequently, right? You would be highly cited right now, right? So there are different ways of specializing in this space, And knowledge that is super pertinent.
2: If I could just add, if you're in social and human sciences, it's also a good idea to specialize on a country or a region. Because the combination of um, having expertise in geopolitics and on cyber is really what people are looking for now.
0: Well, thank you so much. Um, I think with that amazing practical advice, uh, we'll start to wrap up. So Frederic, Juan Andres, Florian, thank you so much uh, for joining me today and having such a fascinating discussion. Thank you also to our listeners. Uh, Do subscribe to our podcast for further episodes. And also for more information on the Hague Cyber Norms Program and our events, have a look at our website and also our Twitter feed. Thank you so much.